welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. My credibility to stand before you this evening, thanks. As a 15-year-old schoolgirl that I met when I preached for the first time as an 18-year-old new convert, and Meryl was in the congregation at a youth camp that night, and a whole lot of young people came forward to accept Jesus as friend and Savior and Lord. And little did I know that in amongst that delightful crowd of young people was the girl that I would now share 33 years of marriage with. I baptized her in water, in the Spirit, and I married her as a young 18-year-old. My eldest daughter, when she was conceived, I was pretty persuaded it was a boy. And, uh, well, that's what every Afrikaans dad has as a boy first. I mean, everyone knows that. And uh, when, after a very traumatic pregnancy, Nasia was born, Nasia Lara, which means miracle of God, the uh, OBGYN, the gynecologist, had to do an emergency cesarean section and as they lifted Nasir out, she, uh, he said, he's a girl, he's a girl, he's a girl. <laughs> Which momentarily perplexed me. <laughs> she got married at 18. And while I sat in the car waiting to walk her down the aisle, it was a, a beautiful garden wedding. A friend of mine was the manager of a hotel. And uh, it was right on the top of this East San Gabriel Valley overlooking Los Angeles. And uh, she turned to me, this gorgeous 18-year-old, and she said, Dad, when we get there, and she pointed out the window to a, where the red carpet began, and white chairs with this exquisite canopy of color, which Meryl had imported from India. She said, Dad, when we get there, she says, I have something for you. So we walked, the music was playing, Josh Groban's You Lift Me Up. And as we started walking together, and she stopped at the red carpet, and she said, Dad, can I have one more dance with you? And we danced together. That's the only credibility I have. In a few weeks' time, I will be walking Dana down the aisle to her sweetheart, to her singer, songwriter, friend, soon-to-be lover. And I wanted to play that song partly because it really moves me, um, I was at uh, the House of Blues in Los Angeles when she sang that song, and I was deeply moved both by the content of the music, the passion with which she sings it, it's her song, it's her story, as well as just the sheer privilege of being a father of a daughter. I want to take you this evening, if I may, to a rather different text to what you may be used to. But then that's okay because you're not used to too many of my kind as foreigners in moments like this. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you mind turning to the book of Revelation? It's the last book in the Bible. So it's easy. You just go right to the end. If you get lots of little writing in rows, it isn't that place. If you then find maps, it's not there either, but you, you're almost there. Um, it's uh, Revelation and it's chapter 12. It's a story about a woman. I want to read it, we're going to pray together, and we're going to dive straight into it. 
Revelation chapter 12, and a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with a sun, with a moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she was to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war rose in heaven and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan and the deceiver of the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now, now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down, who accuses them before Sorry, he accuses them day and night before our God. And they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. The book of Revelation, just to frame it very briefly, is a very poetic book. It's a, it's a drama that unfolds. It's a theater piece before you. You don't have to be perplexed by all the little nuances and details. You think, Chris, what does that mean? The diadem and the horns. And the, just, we can step back from that in just, for just a moment. The, the right way to speak about this text is obviously a community of faith, a woman representing the community of faith who gives birth to a boy child. Now, I've seen my wife give birth to three. I saw my daughter give birth to three. I missed the fourth one in Perth just a few months ago. I will see them on Monday. And I remember in Perth peeping through, you know, the problem with us South Africans, we're not great rule keepers. And uh, where Nas was giving birth, there was a sign that says kind of no one but the most important people should be there. I'm obviously the most important person there as her father. And so I walked down very boldly. If you do something boldly and courageously, people assume you should be there. So I walked down very boldly and courageously, found the room where she was um, uh, somewhere between groaning, moaning, and screaming, depending upon the intensity of the moment. And uh, she saw me. And looked and and she said, are you okay, dad? I wasn't sure how to answer that particularly because I was certain it was I who was supposed to ask her the question in between the moans and groans. And ladies, I, I, I think you would say there's probably never a more vulnerable moment then that moment when you give birth, I, I can assume, having seen my wife do it, having seen my daughter do it, I can assume you would feel at your most vulnerable. And the enemy finds these moments when you are at your most vulnerable to come in and to pour his wrath, anger, deception, and pain over you. Yeah. And I want to take just a few moments to sculpt for you the picture of woman at war. 
So often these kinds of gatherings, I'm sure, and rightfully so, have to do with the beauty and the perfume and the color and the texture and the joy of being a woman, and rightfully so. And maybe God in his humor and his wisdom would bring someone like me in for a moment who has journeyed, my wife, my gorgeous wife's 51, uh, my, my daughters are 25, and next week 27, I have seen their journey, I have wept with them, I've lain with them, I have upheld them, I've rebuked them, I've disciplined them, I've corrected them, I will have walked both down the aisle in just a few weeks' time. But of this I'm absolutely certain that the enemy Ladies, the enemy has targeted you when you are periodically at your most vulnerable times to stand at that moment of vulnerability to capture that which God has for you. Isn't it interesting when Jesus was in the wilderness, Satan came. Now, those of you not as acquainted with the Bible stories, forgive me for my brevity. But Jesus, when he was down here walking the earth, there was a time when he went into the wilderness And in that time, Satan came in some form, we know not exactly how, but he came and met with Jesus when? When Jesus was at his most vulnerable. He he, he was without food, he was without his friends, he was without all the perks and benefits that give us sanity and safety in our world. And the enemy comes to him and has a go at him in all the areas that he was most vulnerable in. And this is a remarkable passage Because there are three ways I want to suggest that I have watched my wife attacked. I've watched my girls being attacked. And the enemy is, thankfully, boringly repetitive. Because he will wait for you at your most vulnerable moment. And again, the picture of kind of the the midwife. He is standing there when you are most vulnerable, the beginning of a new job, the beginning of a new career, the beginning of a a marriage, the beginning of your teenage years, the beginning of the month. He, he, He is there at that moment ready to do three things. And this text gives us a window. This text says, and I'm going to give them in reverse in the order in which they're given. The first thing that he does is he comes and it says, and the serpent poured water like a river over the woman. He comes to overwhelm you. Disproportionate to reality, he comes to overwhelm you. I remember as a five, six-year-old, we moved from Johannesburg area, for those who know South Africa, to the coast. And so the, the beach was new to me. I was uncertain. I didn't understand the minutiae of the waves and the ebbs and flows of shore breaks. And I remember running into the shore break and the little gully that the shore break had created soon was above my head. And I was pivoting up and down, trying to breathe my Seven-year-old sister, barely two years older than I, came underneath me and held me up. But at that moment in time, one, I was certain I was drowning. The fact that I was kind of in very shallow water was not pivotal at that moment in time. I was convinced that death was imminent. (laughs) The fact that it was close to the shore was again secondary. In that moment, I was overwhelmed, pummeled by what I was convinced was 20-foot waves when the little shore break beat me up just a little bit. Um, We went to the mountains many years ago. We were actually at a conference, and the afternoon was was, um, free, so we dashed down and kind of had a little picnic, and uh, the tappings were there, the Rufuses and ourselves, for those of you who know it. And it was 1984. We were all young. We were in our 20s. And uh, we were in this little mountain stream, so the guys go in, we swim, Uh, the girls kind of were a little bit awkward, and so uh, Meryl loved the water. 
water. So she dove into the water and started swimming breaststroke. A very strong and capable swimmer, I hasten to add. But we're chatting away, and then the next minute, you know, you, you, your spouse begins to have a tone and a voice that it sounds the same, but it's very, very different. And from the generic Chris, it became more intense and became more embracing. And I looked up and I could see horror in her eyes as she was swimming more and more. And the current would not allow her to come and join us. And she was like, Chris, Chris. And I said, what's wrong, babe? She says, I can't get to you. I looked somewhat perplexed and I said, would you stand? What do you mean? Just stand. She was in thigh deep water. <laughs> You see, what the enemy does, ladies, is a perpetual and sequential drawing, empowering, overwhelming of you to create your life circumstance at that moment. That's why you are, I don't, I mean, you hear how men joke about the red letter day and that time of the month and I'll beware. No, no, no. Listen, firstly, it's a God gift to you. It is a God gift to you. I have a wife, I have two daughters, it is a gift. It produces life, it produces a legacy, it produces longevity. The enemy would have us to mean some of the great and glorious moments of divine creation. If we see it like that, firstly, we've already beaten the enemy. It's not let's scatter, it's mom or, or sister's day, it's let's embrace and partner because she is at her most vulnerable because the enemy wants to overwhelm her with emotion, overwhelm her with thoughts and, and perceptions and deceptions, and it's a time we muscle up around her and hold her, you, and the great gift of life that God has wondrously given to you. Being overwhelmed is a strategy the enemy uses. And I want to say to you, oftentimes when you feel like you're swimming upstream and you're not getting anywhere, stand. Stand because you will actually find the water isn't nearly as deep as you thought it was. By crying out to those around you, you can stand and stand strong and stand sane. Secondly, the enemy comes and he brings accusation against you. It says he accuses them day and night before the throne. I was preaching in Portland, Oregon uh, uh, two months ago. It's a delightful church. It's a large church. And I, when I preach, I see pictures. And I saw a picture unfold. And the, the story briefly goes like this. 18-year-old Christian girl, not a true story, in my mind, I saw the story unfold. She is hanging out with her Friends. She feels like she wants to share a little bit of the love of Christ. Always says, no, 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 no. But this occasion, she feels the invite to have a few margaritas on the Friday night is fine. She goes home feeling pretty stoked about herself. She dresses herself in a little black cocktail number. Quite exquisite, even if she may say so herself. Puts on her best makeup, does her hair exquisitely. The perfume is well chosen and immaculately presented and slips out with a spring in her step to have a few drinks with her friends whom she has been sharing the love of Christ. Two margaritas later and it's time to go, she says, her friends overwhelming in their love and enjoying of the moment encourage her to stay for just one more drink. Ah, oh, she says, one more drink. What damage can that do? But one more, another margarita led to a third and a fourth. And ultimately, she wakes up the next morning in the bed of a stranger with a little black dress hanging from the door. Devastated by her own foolishness, stupidity, and moral failure, she pulls the dress on and she runs out the door, gets home, falls on the bed, and is devastated before the Father. God, what have I done? What have I done? She feels 
the forgiveness of God. Her confession produces cleansing, and cleansing produces freedom. And after many tears and brokenheartedness, she knows the Father loves her and embraces her in spite, of, in spite of her own foolishness. Nine months later, she's standing in front of a mirror. She's got a white dress on. It's wedding time. She stands, having lost just a few pounds, looking rather exquisite in a, in a dress of her own creation. Her sisters are giggling. It's the first one to get married. Her mother is ooing and aahing, checking every detail of the dress. Her father is standing with checkbook in hand, shaking his head, desperate. <laughs> and as she stands there, the enemy jumps onto her shoulder, and all that he has to say is, the little black dress. The family is absolutely confused as she rips the dress off, grabs her jeans and T-shirt, runs out the room crying. They perplexed, looking at each other, absolutely astounded. She dashes home, locks the door, falls on her bed, cries out to God, Oh God, oh God, oh God, I am so sorry. But heaven is silent, for God is perplexed. God, remember nine months ago and God says no 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 remember the little black dress no no remember that the club and the, the mug no while I am talking I'm unaware there are about a thousand people in the room a girl that's dark like this runs out the back, up to the stairs to the counselor, falls on her face before the counselor and says, he's telling my story, he's telling my story. You see, the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the enemy comes and he doesn't lie to you, he doesn't have to. He simply reminds you of an incident where you, ma'am, dropped your guard you lost the moment, you erred, you wish, you regret. All of us in this room regret something in our lives that if only it never happened is what resounds inside of us and the enemy knows where your if only it didn't happen, happened. And he will come back repeatedly for you as a woman in your most vulnerable, exquisite and God-reflected moment. You are captivated before him in worship and he says, you better let your arms down because if these girls know what I know about you, they will be disgusted in your hypocrisy. And it's at that moment in time, you know, ma'am, you are a woman at war because you have an enemy who is committed to your demise. Not only overwhelmed, not only accused, but the third strategy he uses, ladies, is he, he comes as the deceiver of the world. Meryl was asked to speak in an event recently, and we sat down, as we often do, and processed the talk, and um, time doesn't allow me to embellish fully on it. But uh, we asked about why is it that women wrestle so much with guilt and, and, and condemnation and, and disappointment? And I said, you know, babe, isn't it amazing... Most, all women have their own Ten Commandments. She said, what do you mean? I said, subconsciously, every woman has set her own subconscious or conscious Ten Commandments against which she measures herself. Yeah. So for example, commandment number one, my body. I see myself at, I don't know what a, a, a pound for kilo is for a moment, but, but let's say 129 pounds. And that is your commandment to yourself. You have, you have set a commandment against which you will beat yourself for not fulfilling your own commandment. 
See, it's not God's commandment. It's not even necessarily Satan's commandment. It's what you have believed for yourself as the measure of righteousness. It's your measure of applause and self-approval. And when you breach that, you, you set for yourself a body shape and style that that is your commandment. You set for yourself a standard of living, a home you're going to live in. If you're a mum, oh Lord, Orange County, Orange County where we live, externally is so tranquil and so gorgeous, Laguna and, and Dana Point and San Juan Capistrano, it is exquisite and everyone appears to be so casual. Southern California, everyone's relaxed, but internally everyone's beating themselves up by their own commandments. The mother feels guilty if her daughter doesn't go to ballet and extra math. And her son doesn't go to, translating it, to cricket and to rugby and extra biology. And she looks around and, oh no, and they do that and so I've got to run here and I've got to go there. And living in perpetual smoldering guilt and self-doubt because I haven't met my own commandments. And the enemy who is the deceiver of the world, dear friends... Loves your Ten Commandments. He doesn't need the Bible. He doesn't even need to lie to you. And he does. He just simply uses the whip which you've created for your own back to bend you in guilt and self-displeasure. So, so what is the answer here? Let's get to the really good news. There are five things that the scripture says is the way you as woman deal with your enemy. The first they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. Yeah. You know, um, Meryl's family are remarkable. Um, they, they, they gave us many things, but trust is probably the greatest gift. My father was an alcoholic, and the trust is not something an alcoholic family lives with. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. But Meryl's parents and family are remarkable, and they gave us the gift of trust. And then when Meryl and I sat down, as we all do, and said, well, we want to take this from the one family and this from that family, trust was the overriding value we wanted to embrace. And each one of my kids, I walked them through. I've got the two girls and then a 14-year-old boy that started high school today. And um, every one of them broke that trust, somewhere on the line, in their mid-teens. And last year, it was my boy's turn. He was 13, it was the summer, and he blew it. And the Spirit of God spoke to me, he said to me, it's time, and it was like I knew exactly. I walked to him, I said, T, you've got something to tell me, boy, haven't you? And he looked at me, he said, yes, Dad. I said, well, come. And so I disciplined him, dealt with him that night. Now, he's almost as tall as I am, a little bit younger. That night, he's lying on his bed in his boxes, kind of this boy man, and I put my hand in his chest like this. And I said, uh, boy, you know, I said, do you know Jesus will never love you any more, any less than he loves you right now? And his eyes were closed. He was looking up towards, I mean, face towards the ceiling. And his head just went from side to side as a tear rolled down his cheek. And I put my hand into his side of his face. I said, boy, I want you to hear. God will never love you any more or any less than he loves you right now. And as long as his head went from side to side, I kept saying it over and over until his spirit quietened. And it dawned on him that God will never love him any more or any less than he loves him right now. But I said, boy, it's not finished. He said, do you know it gets better? I said, not only will he never love you any more or any less, 
I said, he will never have this conversation with you again. He'll never. Because the Bible says God chooses to remember my sin no more. And I said, boy, God won't and I won't. We'll never have this conversation again. You see, ladies, the blood of the lamb, it's an exquisite piece of theology. It's a glorious piece of Jesus and what he's done for me. But the implication is that I can live free every single day. I'm astounded, honestly. Christians of many years who never have a free day. Who never. And so we need to go up to an altar call. Or we need to go and do something to appease this guilt that's stirring inside of me. But because I cannot accept that this is a non-conversation. God has forgotten it. There are things, to be honest with you. There are things I wish as a Christian, as a pastor, I hadn't done. I never fell morally. I came close. I had to walk it through with Meryl. It was very tender. And I cannot tell you how often, as I'm about to get up and preach, the enemy jumps onto my shoulder and he says, remember Potchefstroom. That's all he has to say. I was at an office in the, in the South African Defense Force, Reserve Force, and I nearly fell morally with a college student. That's all he has to say. And if I don't have this inner revelation, I cannot take it to God. It's a waste of time. I can't go back to God and say, Lord, remember 1989 or it was. God will say, you know, I don't. I really don't. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the wonder, not just of sin forgiven, but sin forgotten. Please, this good news has to be good. It can't be improvement news. It has to be good news. Secondly, how are we doing time-wise? Secondly, not just they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, but the word of their testimony. You know how powerful your story is? We're a little naughty in the church. We love getting on stage people who have a dramatic story. I was telling the pastors yesterday, I preached in South Africa, and God really came. It was a sweet meeting particularly, and at the end there was some worship, and at the corner of my eye, a girl got up to dance on the stage. I know her story. She used to be a stripper. And um, so when she got up to dance, she's an exquisite girl who can dance incredibly well. And, and, and I, I knew my heart was pure as I watched her dance under the freedom and wonder because she has a story to tell. Now, now those are really like amazing stories. But Chris, I don't really have an amazing story like that. I, I just have like a little bitty story. Now, folks, this is the wonder of it. Every one of our stories matter by the word of their testimony. Meryl and I have handed over the two churches we've led. 27 years we've led two churches. We now do this. We empower churches on their story. You know what's incredible? Without financial certainty. 27 years we didn't have to worry about money. The church paid for us. But now the enemy says, you're not going to make it. It's going to be too hard. It's like the enemy with an Aussie accent. It's going to be too hard. But you see, the word of our testimony is that every single time we cried out to God, God blessed us. Meryl is a 21-year-old, stood in a prayer meeting, ladies, married to a 24-year-old school teacher, and we decided to plant a church. She may have told it last time. I'm sorry if you're hearing it again. 
But she was in the prayer meeting worshiping God, and she said, oh God, do you want us to plant this church? And that means I'll have to give up ever owning a home. I'll have to give up ever, my kids ever owning nice clothes, and we'll never travel overseas. Yeah. And she said, Lord, I'll do it. And she wept, and she wept, and she wept. And as she walked out of the prayer meeting, she looked at me, and she said, we can do it. See, the word of her testimony is now all these years later, we own two homes in Los Angeles. We travel more than I can cope with. I am embarrassed if I had to tell you where I'm going to be next month or where I was last month. So when the enemy comes and says, you're going to make it, I'll say, hang on, Satan, can you and I just have a little bit of a conversation? Because I want to tell you what God has done for 30 years. I want to tell you for 30 years what he has done for me and for my family. I said to Meryl, we'll never be rich. We'll just do things rich people do. And that's the truth. We're not rich, but we've done things rich people. Why? Because of the word of our testimony. The, the, the great point of the, our arsenal is to be able to tell the... Satan, remember. I, I want to remind you, Satan, of when you got your butt kicked the last time because of what God did to me. You with me? By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testament. Quickly, the others, and I'll just give them to you and wrap it up. They did not love their lives even as unto death. Now, ladies, that's the good news. You're going to have to learn to die well. Can I be a bit cheeky with a story? God is not that enamored with your dream. You know why? Because it's not big enough. Really. It's not big enough. I want to tell you Debbie Jones' story. I wept recently as I remembered it. When I first met Debbie, uh, she came into our church. She was married to Kevin. He was the chief financial officer for a flour mill. And she was the regional uh, sales manager for Estee Lauder. Lauder? Yeah, Estee Lauder. Every time immaculate. Gorgeous woman, always immaculate. Nails, hair, makeup, dress, always immaculate. We became friends, the four of us. And Debbie's dream was to live in the hills with green grass, with white picket fence, in the mists, with her kids around her. And when I heard that for the first time, I smiled inwardly and thought, you're probably not going to get that anytime soon. <laughs> but she was desperate and wanted it in the most wonderful way. Fast forwarded for the sake of time, many years later, I stood with Debbie on the dusty streets of a township in Francistown, Botswana. Her husband had been transferred there. And I walked those dusty streets in a, in a, in a poor, dingy, trash-filled township as she stumbled over that with her exquisite face and her glorious makeup and her hands immaculately prepared as she knocked on door after door, hugged these African women who probably hadn't bathed because there's no running water available. And after every hug and every closed door, she would turn to me and she would say, Chris, this is my congregation. These are the women I love. Now, how many of you know the enemy has no hold over Debbie Jones? Because the thing she feared the most was the greatest gift God gave her, and she has life. Yeah. Today she lives in a beautiful home with a white picket fence <laughs> in the hills because God gave her a greater gift, and it's the gift of freedom. Yeah. When we hold on to the things that we think will add up to our dream, the enemy has us captive. But when we give it away and leak it out there and be empowered by God's dream for our lives, watch and see 
the freedom that he really, really gives. Remember Meryl's story? Remember Debbie's story. The last two things as I land, right at the end of the chapter, it gives us two other pieces of the arsenal of women at war. It says, they conquered him with the commandment of God. Obedience is one of the most profound ways in which we gain victory over the enemy. The commandment, there's not the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. It's the thing that the, 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 the prophet says, what does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord require of you? That's, that's what it is. When our kids emigrated to Perth to go and plant a church, we took them to LAX. We had the two grandkids. We had our daughter and son-in-law on their great adventure. And we drove back home in our L.A. home. And Meryl and I, I, I looked for Meryl. I couldn't find her. Our, little, our, our son was with us. He was about 10 years old. And we thought we've got to be strong in the car. Got home, put him to bed, walked through. Meryl was sitting in the bathroom weeping, weeping. I sat next to her and I wept too because this wasn't my dream. A year later, we were in Perth. Meryl had the baby on the hip. I was going to preach. My daughter was leading worship. And Mark, six foot four, red hair, was standing in the front leading worship. Two boys, teenage boys, were standing either side of him, imitating him, really. Their hands held, singing out to God. And as Meryl was standing there with baby on the hip, my daughter leading worship, Mark standing in the front worshiping, the Spirit of God said to you, now do you understand? Now do you understand? The commandments of God are the things he asks us to do for reasons we never fully understand in the moment. But there will be that, aha, now I understand. And lastly, the last part of the verse speaks of the testimony of Jesus. I love that. I love talking about Jesus. I was thinking about it as I was praying for you all this afternoon. And I was just walking up and down thinking of the great incidents Jesus had. The woman caught in the very act of adultery. She was probably naked because they ripped her out of the actual act and dragged her, as was the custom, into the town square to stone her and to embarrass and ridicule her. And Jesus leans across to her in her absolute, the, 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 I think the worst possible way a woman can be demeaned in a public square. And he leans across to her and he embraces and he holds her and he leads her back to wholeness. I, I was thinking about the empty tomb and the fact that a woman got there first. And, and God just said, I want to empower you. And he says, I want you to preach the first gospel message. Because when those women ran back to the disciples and said, he is risen, he is risen, that is the good news. The first gospel message was preached by a bunch of women who loved him desperately and wanted the world to know he is risen. Ladies, you are at war. And the enemy has a strategy at you. And knowing what it is, is the first act of victory. But the second is to take those five pieces, to implement them, and you'll be astounded at the space you will live in. Can we pray together? This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and God bless.